Cause you wake up in the world of broken hope Are you there already begging for the rope? Are you trying to sit back and toe the line? Or do you think that you can barely find the time? Welcome to Bold, Conversations About Race, a podcast brought to you by Surge National in collaboration with Small Beans Comedy and produced by White People for Black Lives. I'm one of your hosts, Yvette Ale. I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Dahlia. I use they, them pronouns. Welcome, everybody, to this episode on mutual aid. Right now, we have Dean Spade, who has been working to build queer and trans liberation based in racial and economic justice for the past two decades. He works as a professor at Seattle University School of Law. We are so thrilled that you are with us today, Dean. Uh, We've been followers of your work around mutual aid for a long time. I know you have a a YouTube video that we have used often to describe mutual aid, which we will also be linking to in the show notes, but just dropping that here real quick. But before we get into, you know, some of the meat and potatoes of the conversation, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, where you're from, like how, you know, who you're, what you're about, how'd you get involved in this stuff? Um, Yeah, I live on, in in Seattle now on Duwamish land, Um, but I'm originally from Virginia from like rural central Virginia outside a place that now everybody knows where it is Charlottesville um from like the countryside little village out there um and I also lived in New York for a long time and some other places um but yeah I how did I come to this I mean I think I came to doing work for liberation because I grew up like really poor on welfare and in foster care and just a lot of people in my that I cared about and loved like died of poverty in different ways and um, in a super racially segregated, like sort of black, white, um, binary kind of place and had a strong sense of the deep injustices happening around that and the intersection with class and kind of got some feminist analysis, um, on my own starting in high school, just seeing like the kind of stuff that was happening to me and other people I knew, um, and came into like queer movements when I left Virginia. Um, I left when I was around 16 and I like found queer people and found out about, um, I had a lot of like working class queer jobs, like, um, and found other people who um, had a queer politics based in racial and economic justice. And ultimately, it was like living in New York City in the mid 1990s when Rudy Giuliani was mayor. There was a lot of like really fierce intersectional activism going on about things ranging from policing to the criminalization of homelessness to um, conditions on Rikers Island, uh, gentrification, like people were just doing a lot of overlapping work on those things. And I really got my education from other like grassroots activists in like unpaid kind of grassroots formations. Um, and, and that led me to, to abolition, um, because it's, it's always centrally been about everything being criminalized. Like that's just like the, the crisis that's always happening in our communities is people getting arrested or being locked up and, um, and really, you know, having a clear view that I think I got through a lot of different like feminist and queer, um, radical traditions that like, um, uh, trying to make the prisoner jail or the cops nice, like has never worked, doesn't work. Um, and so as, you know, um, as that politics like crystallized and clarified into like a clear abolition framework, especially in the late nineties, um, that really influenced me and has influenced me the whole time I've been, um, doing social movement work. So, so Dean, you know, the term mutual aid, uh, may be something that folks are unfamiliar with, but especially over the past year may have heard this term used a lot, especially in the context of the pandemic, um, and, you know, the increased visibility around racial justice. Um, can you, help define that term for folks that may have heard it, um, but are not necessarily as familiar with uh, what it means? Yeah. Like all words, you know, people use them different ways, but I'll tell you how I use it, like what I, what it means to me. And I think a lot of people I work with in social movements is it's when we do the part of the social movement work where we're meeting each other's direct survival needs, like needs for housing, needs to get out of prison, needs to get food, whatever. Um, and we're doing that from a shared understanding that the systems in place cause the crisis people are in, not the people causing the crisis. And the third piece of it is that we're doing it with an invitation to collective action. So we're saying like, yeah, your landlord's doing this to you right now. Let's, we're going to help you right now with this. And if you want to get involved in trying to make it so that no landlords do this or so that your landlord doesn't do this to anyone in your building or on your block, please come get involved. I would say those are the three main pieces I think of in the definition of mutual aid. 
Awesome. And can you give some examples, like any concrete examples of mutual aid, I guess, done well or just mutual aid generally that you think um, folks can learn a little bit more about that practice? Yeah, I think it's a great idea just to like picture how how broad a range of mutual aid activities we all do is. So like there are people who are like trying to stop like a camp from being swept right now in every city, right? But there's so many people living outside and like cops or sanitation comes through. And so there's people there trying to block that or trying to help people gather their belongings so they don't lose everything in the sweep and have it all go to the landfill. There's people doing um, COVID mutual aid, right? Like people trying to make sure people can get groceries who are immune compromised and can't go to the grocery store. We've seen a lot of that um, in the last couple of years. Um, we could see like all the work people do to support people currently locked up in detention centers, jails, and prisons. So like, you know, a lot of grassroots groups have like a hotline. Those people can call about the conditions happening and then they try to put pressure to, to stop the abuses inside, or they are getting people to write individual letters to people inside, you know, help them, um, you know, block their isolation and like actually be able to be connected to others and plan for when they get out. Um, or people are like giving rides to family members to visit um, people inside different facilities. We could also think about stuff like bail funds, like um, trying, you know, trying to build community resources for common crises. We could also think about like the moment when we're all out in the streets, like the street medics are there. That's a mutual aid project. They're directly meeting our needs, like cleaning our eyes from tear gas, helping make sure everybody has a mask during COVID. Um, or we could think about how when then, you know, I'm getting arrested and you guys like help pull the cops off me. And like stop my arrest, like very direct kind of that is that's mutual aid. You're like meeting my survival need of not being caged by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, we could, I mean, you know, child care, food projects, urban gardens that help a, a community have um, fresh fruits and vegetables. Like there's such a range, you know, sometimes tutoring projects to help kids who are in schools that are being underserved. Um, there's, you know, we could go on a court support for criminalized people. Um, you know, helping people in your neighborhood fill out benefits applications you know, help uh, protesting at a, at a boss's house because they're, you know, doing wage theft on immigrant workers. You know, we, it's good to just see, think in the range. One other piece that's worth mentioning is like disaster relief. Like a lot, a big place we see mutual aid is when there's a big, you know, fire, flood, storm, people just helping each other out. Because as we all know, like FEMA doesn't show up. The government only shows up usually with guns, you know? So it's like, okay, we, we're, we know that the folks in the, in the, you know, building on the block, have elders and now the elevator isn't working because the lights are out. We're going to go over there and try to make sure there's water getting up to them. Or like we, you know, we're going to do this ourselves. We see this, you know, in every kind of like big, you know, acute disaster like that, but it's the same stuff we're doing in the like long-term disasters of like criminalization and poverty, et cetera. Yeah. I know Yvette has talked to me about in the past, you know, being there for Hurricane Sandy in New York. Yeah, there, there'd be elders, you know, up in the 40th, 50th floor of buildings in the middle of winter and folks, you know, really rallying to bring up food and water and um, and heat up to these to these buildings. So I, I really appreciate the expansiveness of uh, the examples that you shared, because it's more than just money. Um, and often when folks think about mutual aid, um, it's, you know, donating money. Um but it's so, it can be so much more than that, right? Um, you know, contributing your skills, uh, contributing uh, your time and your energy is. It sounds like that's mutual aid as well. And I'm curious because you know s- some folks might be thinking, oh, well, mutual aid is is charity. You know, that's their their concept of of what it could look like. But can you talk to us about the difference between mutual aid and charity, and and why mutual aid? Yeah. Definitely. And I want to come back to the thing about just money. That's like such a good point. It relates to this point about mutual aid versus charity. So we live in a context in which like the charity model is like the most sort of dominant model of thinking about like what should be done about people in crisis. It's like, or, you know, poor people. It's like, um, and what charity, the charity model looks like is like rich people or the government gives to some, in this, these days it's like nonprofit social services type of thing. And then those people decide who are the deserving or undeserving poor. And they say, oh, well, you know, you, they use all these eligibility criteria. Like you have to be sober or you have to have kids or not have kids, or you got to be over this age or under this age. You know, you have to not have a felony or you need to be documented. Like there's all this eligibility criteria. And this is a long history of trying to determine who is the deserving versus the undeserving poor. And this, you know, this goes back to like Christian models in Europe of like rich people giving alms to the poor by their way into heaven. But today it might look like, you know, billionaires giving chump change to our, you know, to nonprofits to try to make, make their PR look better. You know, it's the same kind of story. Um, and this kind of deserving, undeserving poor thing is really important because what it does is it says that when people are in crisis, 
it's their fault. And we got to find the one, the few who it's not their fault. And so we're generally saying there's nothing wrong with people being unhoused, poor, hungry, et cetera, in our culture. They just didn't work hard enough. They're bad or they're drunk or whatever that we think is wrong with them. They're criminals, whatever the story is. And then we're going to find those few who deserve something. So it, it legitimizes the entire system of extraction to have this charity model. So mutual aid is the exact opposite of that. It's like, actually, everyone deserves everything. If people are in crisis, it's because of a system, not because something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we need to do is meet their crisis and assume that they have dignity and wisdom about what they need. So instead of like, I'm sure many of other of you like me have been on food stamps or something, they're like giving you food stamps, but they won't give you, like, you can't buy shampoo or tampons with that shit. So it's like, you know, like they, they know what you need. You don't know, or, you know, you can't use your wick for this or that, like the sense that, you know, or there's been a lot of um, uh, jurisdictions that I've tried, like care, not cash. Like we're going to stop giving cash benefits because they're so afraid you're going to use it wrong, or they make poor people go through budgeting classes Mm-hmm. to get benefits as if the reason you're poor, cause you know, we were all born with the exact same money and the reason you're poor is because you've like spent yours. Um, right. That kind of, all those ideas that are super paternalistic ideas say that, that poor people are poor because there's something morally wrong with them um, or intellectually wrong with them or whatever. And so mutual aid is like, no, poor people actually know the most about what they need. People in crisis and disaster, they know the most about what they need um, and their dignity is central. And we believe everybody should have what they need and we want to get to the root causes of any systems that um, actually produce poverty, which is like, you know, so the systems we live under. I love what you said about that mutual aid isn't just money because it is, I think it's very visible in this COVID period where mutual aid has gone kind of mainstream. One of the things you see a lot is people raising money in funds like uh, a mutual aid fund, you know, for our neighborhood or for artists who are out of work or for sex workers who are out of work in this space and don't qualify for the federal, you know, unemployment benefits or whatever, which is great. Bail funds, bail funds are like really taken off in the period of the uprising. Raising money is great, but the thing that makes mutual aid so amazing is it's, it's um, deeply mobilizing. It brings people into a deep participation of their values. And so what we don't want that the current culture really wants us all to be like, I've got woke politics, but I don't do anything about it except for sometimes click on something or vote when I'm told to, or go to the one March a year when I'm told to, that is very convenient for the current, you know, for our opposition. What we want is like everybody to find ways to really participate in their communities and in social movements. So mutual aid is like, it's like giving money can be part of it, but that's a bit more on the charity model. If we just stop there. And also a lot of people don't have any money to give. Like most people are like really suffering more and more in the current economy, right? And under the systems we live under. So what we really want to give each other is like our, our show uppingness. Like I am going to actually know my neighbors and find out who is, lives on the 40th floor and can't get down when the lights are out or has a medical device that needs a battery when the lights go out. And then who else has a battery? I'm going to actually show up weekly to the food project or the garden project, or I'm going to do the babysitting for the people who have to go to the court you know, or I'm going to, um, you know, show up and pack the court or I'm going to unarrest people. I like act, we want more and more people to feel skilled up to practice their beliefs about all of our well-being and the kind of urgent conditions we're in. And so, um, I really, what, what I really want and dream is a, that nobody goes through these systems unaccompanied and alone, which is so horrible and violent, right? And B, that everybody knows how to figure out how to be part of accompanying someone, whether that's because you're writing a letter to a prisoner, whether that's because you're going to someone's welfare hearing with them, whether that's because you are, you know, the medic at the giant march where we're taking over the building and, you know, letting all the people out of the prison, that'd be cool. Um, that's like next level mutually that we're moving towards prison breaks. Um, not that they never happen now, but they could happen more. Um, so, so that, that, that piece charity is like, oh, you, you're worried about the unfortunate. Well then send your money to the nonprofit, you know, or volunteer at the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving once a year and don't have, you're not participating deeply. You're not helping try to solve the problem. You're not thinking of the new world. You're just kind of like letting the experts of the nonprofit decide. Um, and that system is just definitely not going to get us out of this. We need something that we're like, all of us are like super engaged in a, in a much more alive way. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for that. That's uh, super important for us to really think about, to be able to distill the difference and really, um, you know, this key difference of you're talking about is like community activation too, right? Like what are we doing to also challenge the systems that create the conditions that warrant mutual aid in the, in the first place. Right. Um, and so a couple of things I'm, I'm thinking about. So like one, um, is around like 
how do you how do you even find like mutual aid projects like in your in your local neighborhood? And then the other, like we know mutual aid projects exist. And so, you know, within that, like are what are some barriers or obstacles that that can come about when folks are trying to organize mutual aid in case this is, you know, an episode where people are like, oh, I didn't know this existed, but I want to try it, you know, or I want to find it. And so are there any tips on how to you know, make mutual aid efforts, you know, the, the most effective or like, you know, what do we have to be on the lookout that could be potential downfalls or what have you? Like, how do we make it be the best that it can be? Yeah. That question about how to find them is a really important one because most mutual aid projects are just a lot of unpaid people, right? Mm-hmm. Because of course, like we can't expect that rich people in the government are going to pay us to do the things that they want to not have happen and to build movements that will topple them. <laughs> so most of us are going to do most of our mutual aid work and all of our social movement work unpaid in this lifetime. And so, it's, you know, it's, how, how do you find this place? They don't have some like big old building in your neighborhood or they don't necessarily have like a website. They might have social media, you know. So figuring that out is really important and involves a lot of relationship building. I do think if you're totally new and trying to figure out what's happening in your region, it can be useful to go to mutualaidhub.org, which is like a list of mutual aid projects on a map it's like, even if you don't find the thing in your neighborhood or even in your part of the state, you can then find something nearby and ask people there, like message those projects and be like, do you know anything where I am? And that will eventually lead you. Um, also, it's going down as a media outlet that often covers a lot of mutual aid in detail and has a lot of like listed projects. So I'd recommend that as another source of like, just go look and see what they have and then just start networking to try to find it. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of, really intense obstacles to doing this work because we are humans and we're doing collaborative work together under difficult conditions where there's like really high amount of need and people, um, you know, uh, in crisis, like it's like, that's a big deal. A lot of us haven't done this before. So some of the big obstacles I see people burn out. Um, sometimes people get really into it. I've seen this a lot in the last couple of years, especially because a lot of new people are doing mutual aid, which is so good. Like, first of all, if you're thinking about it, like do it, <laughs> like find people to work with. And also just like read about something or like listen to a podcast or whatever, about something someone already did and try it in your town. Like the, what's going to happen is you're going to make mistakes, but that was going to happen anyway for the rest of your life and everything you do. Um, you know, I, th- I think of this as like imperfect people doing imperfect work. If we really set that up as our expectation, we're likely to be kinder to each other as we learn on the job. Um, but burnout is real. And uh, one of the main reasons burnout happens is because people don't recruit new people. So let's say four of us start a mutual aid project in our neighborhood. And then we, maybe, you know, one person has a baby or gets sick, or whatever, and we're down to three. And then we are doing hardcore, we're moving so much food or whatever, you know, and, you know, we're, it's so amazing, but we are never t- letting other people get in. We don't know, how, or, not, or like, we're not telling people how to get into meaningful roles. They're just like, people can come volunteer in a little way, but they're not like the deciders. And so then we get burnt out. So the key thing mutual aid projects need to do is set it up to bring in new people. We are both trying to meet a huge, huge amount of need, which means more people with more skills and more responsibilities good. And we're trying to build giant movements. So it's, it is a people grower. Mutual aid projects are the on-ramp to social movements historically everywhere. So we want to grow more people. So we want to let people in in a deep and meaningful way. And we want to be like, they, they have enough information to be decision makers. We really know what's going on instead of like, oh, just those three people have the keys to the kingdom because they're the founders and they're so important. It's very easy for us to have ego stuff around that in um, in this culture. The other related thing is hierarchy really messes up mutual aid projects. Most of us have never worked anywhere that didn't have a hierarchy. We've gone to school in hierarchies. We had families with hierarchies. So we're just like, yeah, someone's a boss and someone else has to do whatever they say. That is what we're used to. And we're used to playing those roles, either trying to be the boss or trying to just like be like, whatever, she said I had to do that, so I do. And, and trying to live without that dignity of getting to decide things about our lives. So it's pretty deep. And, and you know, then there's all the other stuff laid, layered on top of it, like the ways in which hierarchy plays out because of our race, gender, you know, all this stuff where, you know, who's got the education in the group, who's done it before, whatever the story is happening. So we need to be like really overt about like, how are we going to make decisions together that aren't just like the first person who got here or the white man who just walked in or the oldest person or whatever. I have a lot of resources about that in my book and also on this uh, website I made that's a mutual aid toolkit that's called bigdoorbrigade.com. It's got like a free stuff in it. Um, that 
those like there's there's tons of resources out there but like you know how to facilitate a meeting where everyone gets heard how to make a decision making a way of doing decisions where we really make sure we hear everybody instead of it's just like i'm dean i found it and i think this should be on thursdays forever and other people are like dude thursdays is the other group's meeting can we do wednesdays and i'm like no you know like that kind of <laughs> stuff happens a lot um and the third piece i would say related is conflict um when people do work they care about together they experience conflict and a lot of people are surprised by this and think that if it's going well or if we have the same values, we won't have conflict. And that's because we live in like a conflict avoidance society. So we like have this mythology that if it's going well, there won't be conflict. So how do we get prepared to have conflict in a good way where we don't have to have blow up the group when there's a conflict? You know, how do we learn to give and receive feedback before it's like, I've been saving it all up and I'm so mad I blow up at you. Like, how do I learn how to say like, oh, like, Dahlia, in the meetings, sometimes I feel like you don't let other people speak or, oh, Dean, you know, you're really, um, you seem kind of flaky on some of your tests and, you know, it, it meant a lot and it meant that this thing didn't happen. Like, how do we actually do that all along the way? Most of us are not used to that. I spend a lot of time with groups doing workshops on like how to build a good feedback culture because it prevents conflict. I mean, there's a lot of pieces around that, how to facilitate meetings well as part of that. There's a lot of like conflict prevention we can do in addition to conflict mediation. But those are some of the like hard pieces. We're living in a time when there's like really good abolitionist resources on a lot of this stuff. And there didn't use it. only like cool. Like, I mean, obviously Miriam Kaba, you know, she's got like so much stuff for you, us all to read and, and workshops to go to, but there's other people too. There's just a lot of stuff out there about these very problems that is really accessible. And, and part of it is I think most mutual aid groups need to be like, it matters how we're acting in this group, not just what we're putting out there in the world. And capitalism, white supremacy is always like, how does it look on the outside? How does it look on the outside? How are the deliverables? What did you produce? But mutual aid groups, if we don't take care of how are we treating, how are we feeling on the inside of this group, how are we, you know, relating, then it's going to blow up. So I would say that's like big lesson learned again and again and again. And, and these resources people are putting out, it might be like, oh, tonight we're going to have a meeting where we're not going to focus on, you know, how many carrots we got out. We're instead going to, you know, how we're going to get the carrots to the right place next week. We're going to focus on talking about the culture of this group or the feedback in this group or um, those feelings of burnout or how we recruit new people. And that is really worth our time. And that's kind of hard for some people if they're first timers, these are like typical, like things they might miss. Um, so I, I think that we're, a lot of us are trying to create shortcuts for, for new people, because we need a lot of new people to join and start a lot of mutual aid projects. Cause like, as you all can see, things are pretty yeah. bad out there. Yeah, they sure are. And I really appreciate you providing guidance around sustainability. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I so find organizing that really important. Of humans. Yeah. Because we're talking about long game here, right? Yeah. It, this is not just when there's an immediate crisis, but these systems have been failing for a very long time for a lot of people. Um, and so really thinking about the long game is, is super important. And you mentioned um, legitimizing the systems of extraction when you were talking about charity. So I want to take a step back. If you could, uh, ex you know, expand on what that means, the system of extraction for folks that might not be familiar with with these terms. I really like that word extraction for talking about like what our economic system does, but also like it's like our government is designed to help rich people extract as much work from from laborers as they can for the cheapest, extract as much like minerals and resources from the land from and minerals and resources from indigenous land as they can, you know, get away with, pollute as much as they can get away with. Like our government protects rich people's extraction over and over again, most of those people being white. And our story is that the people who are millionaires and billionaires are these like brilliant geniuses and that's why they're like that. And <laughs> they've, you know, they've invented these wonderful technological devices or whatever. And so it's okay that most people like are living without the basic things they need and suffering and working long hours and dying young from medical neglect or being in, in cages. That's okay because these people deserve it. And so that story gets pumped up by charity because charity is often about being like, let's celebrate so-and-so because he gave a donation mm -hmm. and let's have nonprofits that have um, the nonprofits, the way they're built. I'm sure people have seen this in their communities. You've got rich people with education often at the top or people who are other, a lot of white people at the top. You got they get whoever's at the top gets paid more than people at the bottom who are more likely to be women and people of color, immigrants, people with disabilities. It's, it just looks like a corporation in a lot of ways in the same kind of hierarchy. And it's telling the same story. Oh, well, I'm the executive director because I'm the one with the law degree or I'm the one who graduated from business school. Like it's telling the same story about whose wisdom matters, whose lives matter. And then like, it's okay that I should like 
have a better place to live in a nicer car because of that and getting paid more is okay. I mean, all of those stories are wrapped up. And so what charities look like is like a rationalization for the system that says like, take and take and take from the earth and the people. Um, and, and then if you, if you're the one who was the top dog, like you're the best one and that's why you're the top dog. And like, at this point, it's just like the most outrageous <laughs> rash. I mean, it's always been outrageous and ridiculous, but I think like there, even as the events of the last year have just caused so many more people to be like, this is not okay. Like it's not okay for the rich people to go to space while like every day more and more people become homeless in my community. And like, you know, there's nowhere to put your kids and, you know, like everyone's working a million jobs and, you know, um, so many of our family members are in deportation proceedings or in prisons and jails. So I think that, um, yeah, for me, the word extraction is nice too, maybe because it links the environmental crisis to yeah. the way we feel the squeeze, um, on poor people from these extractive jobs, um, and housing markets and stuff. So you f- I feel like that it's just, ugh, it's like, it's very palpable to me, like this kind of just squeezing blood from a stone when they're just like, you know, the debt collectors are coming after you and the, you know, now they're charging you fees for having been in prison. I mean, just like this kind of stuff, you know, yeah. it feels like that, that extraction feels like the right word to me. Yeah. Yeah. And we also talk about it even in terms of like the prison industrial complex, right? It extracts humans from their communities to put them in cages and, that, you know, so we don't have to think about them anymore and they're no longer human to us, you know? Yeah, I really appreciate you breaking that down. And, you know, you mentioned your book. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, you know, you shared uh, a bit about your background um, and your analysis, and, like how that analysis was shaped. And I'm, I'm curious, like what brought you into mutual aid um, in, in terms of, of your work um, and, and your writing? Yeah. I mean, I've always been doing mutual aid work because everybody who's in social movements is, it's just like, we're always like, we're fighting to like, you know, get rent control or something in our city while we're like, you know, fighting specific landlords for individuals or we're fighting to stop somebody from being deported while we're also trying to get the deportation center, you know, or the, or the detention center shut down. You know, we're always doing the like big work to stop the violence on everybody while we're supporting the individual people who are in crisis right now. So mutual aid work is just part and parcel of, you know, all social movement work. When Trump was elected in 2016, a lot of new people were really angry and scared. It was this really potent moment for potential mobilization. And one thing I saw happening was like all the lies in our society about how social change works really came to the surface. So it was like, oh, we're going to all vote like, I, I'm not waiting, you know, or we're going to all, you know, go, go to social media. I saw like, I really got so upset. The ACLU like posted all these things around that time that made it seem like they're going to sue Trump. We're going to sue him. And that's going to get rid of this as if the U.S. courts have ever, you know, taken care of things like that. And you saw that, like, you know, he did the Muslim ban and then it was, it was knocked down in court a couple of times. And then he just added Venezuela and then it was fine. Like, you know, the courts are not going to take care of white supremacy and fascism for us. They never have their part of it. Or you saw, you know, the ACLU also, I love to pick on them in this. They also like posted this thing, like, if you're mad about Trump being elected, click on this thing that says you'll defend the constitution. Like what? Like people are looking for something meaningful to do and you're basically misleading them and lying to them really because you're trying to get a donation, telling them they've done something. What, how are they going to defend the constitution? Which also like, what is that? Like a document written by slave owners that's going to like get us out of this? I don't think so. So <laughs> it, was, it was this thing where I just could feel how, because we live in a culture that has lied to us about how social change happens and is obsessed with either like, oh, it was just this one charismatic figure or, mm-hmm. oh, it was this court case, you know, all that stuff, like the court cases that we where people are like celebrate, they're all like way after all the organizing. And usually they are actually designed to deliver as little of the goods people were demanding as possible. This might take us yes. or whatever. We were just talking about Brown versus Board of Education. Mm-hmm. And like, we're, we're like, we still have segregation and it's worse. <laughs> and it's worse than when that passed. Like, <laughs> what worse. did it do? Yeah. Nothing. Exactly. So I was just feeling that because I was like, this is our moment. So many people have their, are, are newly pissed and scared. We need to organize it. And we can also be annoyed that people weren't pissed and scared before, but that doesn't really help us get there. So just like, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the yeah. yeah. And then Instead, I saw people get, getting misled. And so at that time, I made the Big Door Brigade Mutual Aid Toolkit website just to be like, I know a lot of people are like, yeah, people in my community are about to have worse experiences. Let's help each other. Let's. And I just wanted to popularize the idea of mutual aid more. Um, I, I, I made that animated video um, that you mentioned at the beginning with an artist just to be like, what is mutual aid? Like an explainer or whatever. I had no idea COVID was coming and that 
mutual aid, the term mutual aid would mainstream. I was just working on this in response to just the conditions we're always working to deal with, you know? Um, and then, and then COVID came and people started mutual aid a lot. And um, Verso Press asked Miriam Kaba if she would write a short book on mutual aid. And she said, no, but make Dean do it because he's already been writing all this stuff down. So it's all, he's got it already, you know, so we can get it out really fast um, just to help people have a, a radical framework for that. Because the other thing I'll say is like, the idea of mutual aid can also really be de-radicalized, right? You could be like, like one of the things I saw, I've seen a lot since it's kind of gone mainstream is people being like, yeah, mutual aid. People have to talk about Hurricane Sandy, you know, you can work with the National Guard and do mutual aid. There can be kind of this like, or the cops could do mutual aid, you, you, like everything else. You could just take it and remove all of the radical oppositional content and make it as if people are just doing charity and just giving something out and it's not nice and it's there's no obstacles with connecting to the military the police or you know ice there's this kind of you know there can be a real evacuation of the politics and so it's important to me that we talk about like no what has mutual aid been it has always been oppositional to our opponents and um and what it, what makes mutual aid have teeth and what are the things, what are the moves that we know our opponents are going to make to try to take the teeth out? Like they're going to try to give people grants and say, don't, you, undocumented people can't be part of this or right. people with felonies. They're going to do all the moves they always do to try to mutual take mutual aid, make it charity. <laughs> they, I mean, that's their move. So just having like, you know, more discussion in our communities about those dangers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the commercialization of mutual aid. Um, like when, you know, I remember in 2014 when Black Lives Matter the, the movement was was more prominent across the country. And, you know, politicians wouldn't even utter the three words, right? Like it was very controversial. And then all of a sudden last summer, these politicians are painting Black Lives Matter, you know, slogans on the sidewalk and on the streets and all of that. And that's supposed to be like the, the, the movement, right? It's like the commercialization, but not any real substantive change relative to the actual demands of the movement happening, right? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say we are living into, through such a wild moment because one, we saw that what is it that made them even make those concessions? It was like so many people in the streets causing trouble. Like yeah. disruption is our biggest, like it is, the, it is the piece of the work. We have to have people ready to make bold action to burn down police stations. All that is what made them, you know, take the knee and wear kente cloth in Congress <laughs> or whatever. So embarrassing. Um, the other thing though, is now we see how much like empty lip service and backpedaling can all of our city and county councils do on their defund promises. And they're all trying to give the money back to the police and, you know, sideways and everything. And like, so that's a real question is like, how, how do we maintain the boldness? And this relates to what you said about, um, about sustainability. How do we make it so that when people do rise up and fill the streets and, and do that kind of intense disruption, that the threat lingers, that people are mobilizable again, that it's not, that, that we don't, a lot of those people are like still in jail for things that happened, you know? Yep. We don't lose them to jail and prison for being criminalized for their mobilization. And that also we, um, we don't have it become like a bureaucratic thing where like, you know, five of us are working really hard in city council now, but there's, but there's no kind of that most people don't understand it because it's super technical. Like, how do we like keep the steam so that um, these people can, you know, they just want to get back to the status quo as quickly as possible, no matter who they are, what they say their politics are like, that is the scene with the elected officials and like corporate heads and stuff. So it's like, it's a really dicey moment right now. I think seeing like how much steam does the uprising have for abolition work? And where are they going to try to like, you know, just make it, it was all like we said we fixed it, but like nothing changed or not right. enough changed. Right. And which which actually like fits really nicely into like our, our next question around like this relationship between mutual aid and abolition of uh, prisons and policing. Like, can you just make that link you know, for for our listeners and like how it is that we can be having this conversation around mutual aid and communities really taking care of communities. Yet the theme that's kind of like underlying all of this is around systems of oppression and then also like, you know, taking down those oppressive systems, which, you know, we and then building something different, right? That's more equitable and just and where we all have our needs met, hence abolition, right? So um, do you want to talk a little bit more about that relationship? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of pieces to that. Like one is that Abolitionists always do mutual aid work. We always are directly supporting people's immediate needs who are currently policed or in prisons or jails or their families or in detention centers like that. Sometimes people say to abolitionists like, but you're, but you're saying we can't do the immediate work to help with the conditions. No, we are always doing that work. Mm -hmm. We are often doing it 
especially for the people who get left out of the work of like some of the mainstream work that supposedly meets some of those needs of those people. Right. Like, I think that's a really big thing. It's like, um, yeah, like the people who don't qualify for legal help, the people who, you know, who get cut out by nonprofits that say they're meeting the needs of people in those systems. Um, the other thing is that we believe that you can meet the needs of people, people in those systems and, and have deep relationships so that those people's wisdom about those systems guides what we do. And so mutual aid groups usually have a more radical analysis that's coming from people struggling in those systems than like nonprofit and policy groups have. So I just want to give an example that was really important to shaping my understandings. Many years ago, Congress was working on passing the National Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is a law that's supposed to that has a lot of detailed policies in it that's supposed to help reduce prison rape. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, right? Like um, sexual violence is endemic to imprisonment. And I was part of a lot of, you know, different policy roundtables and stuff where we were trying to influence this to um, address how severe prison rape is against trans people in prisons. And um, the, the thing got passed. And then one of the first things that happened was that really shone a light on what this law was, was that Black and Pink, which was a really small group that writes letters to queer and trans people in prisons all over the country, they were saying this law, PRIA, Prison Rape Elimination Act, this law, it's being used to criminalize people in prison. It's being used if you report sexual assault and you can't prove it, which can be very hard in prison, then you're charged with PREA. Or there are people in some of these prisons who they're getting charged with PREA violations because they grew their nails out or grew their hair out, go by a feminine name, or mm -hmm. they're getting charged because they had, they held hands with somebody, or they're getting charged just for being queer or trans. They're being called a PREA violation. So basically how this law that looks like a good idea to a bunch of policymakers in D.C., is actually just an expansion of the criminalization of people in prisons and especially queer and trans people. That kind of insight, of course, at first came from a mutual aid group that's talking to the actual people in prisons instead of a bunch of lawyers in some boardroom who are like, this looks good on paper. That is classic, right? And then it's also like, like prisoners and people inside, people in those systems are the most likely to know that the reforms that are being discussed or being proposed or even being supposedly put in place either are not implemented or are making things worse or like, you know, expanding prisons and policing. So to me, that's why abolitionists, like we do mutual aid because that's the only, both because it's right, of course, to support people right away, but also because that's the only way to actually have wise thinking about what reforms are going to get us towards greater freedom versus just shore up new ways of criminalizing people. So mutual aid has this very strategic role in abolitionist like discernment. And it's like, obviously just, you know, part and parcel of how we do the work. It's like abolitionists believe we know what we want to work on based on what people are actually experiencing in these systems, not what the systems say about themselves. And so mutual aid is like vital to that. Awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, really appreciate you breaking that down for us. And so um, now that we're like really digging into kind of some of the pieces are around like what abolition is and, and, you know, some of, some of the things that are, are people's kind of like default emotion or reaction when we talk about abolition is what to do with the murderers and rapists, which I have seen you have an incredible um, tool for of responses for, for that, which we will be linking to in the show notes. But then um, and something that you mentioned earlier in, and, you know, sort of like a joke around like prison breaks and, and, and that kind of thing. Right. Like which is, you know, for us, we can sort of talk a little bit more about that um, in, in a way that we sort of all understand what that means. But, you know, for an audience who like might be new to abolition or like might be, you know, wary around this this notion of like, you know, just tear down all the jails in prisons like kind of thing if they're not if they're not all the way there yet in terms of that of what abolition um you know living in a world that like what it means to actually live in a world free of jails and prisons and policing can you just kind of like break all of that, that down for folks to really like to digestible pieces so people understand what we're really talking about when we say abolition and then if we can actually answer like what do we do with the rapists and the murderers and, and that kind of thing um I hope that made sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I think um, I get asked that question a lot about the rapists and murderers. I think that that makes perfect sense as a question because we live in a society where all the um, propaganda about the policing system, like all the law and order shows and CSI and stuff, they make it seem like what the cops do is like chase down serial killers. And <laughs> all the time, every day. And those serial killers are everywhere. <laughs> and the most typical kind of violence that happens is like strangers murdering strangers. In reality, 
in our society, we are very likely to be harmed by people we know very well, like our own um, lovers, family members, people at our job, um, at our school. Like that's who actually hurts each other, especially people's dates. You know, there's like so much of that that is like who hurts each other. So and parents and stuff like that. So so the so part of it is like how do we move from like what the system tells us it does to what it actually does so that we can assess like what is the value of this system and and what do we need to have the world we want to live in and the system which like sucks up so many resources and so many people like is it really making us safer which is its promise and so one way to think about that is just like the system itself the police the the cages they put people in that is violence. Like that is kidnapping people from the street, putting them in cages. Sexual violence is endemic to that, as we talked about, right? Like the bulk of that sexual violence is done by the police and by um, corrections officers, not by other people inside the prison system. That's one of the myths that I think is really common, right? Um, like, and a lot of the violence in our actual lives is totally untouched by this system, right? So like, um, you know, most sexual violence between people, people don't report it like vast majority, right? It's happening all the time. There's like these huge kinds of harm inside our lives and our communities that like this thing can't touch. Like child sexual abuse is a really good example of that. Like it is so common. We all know people have been affected by it or have been affected by it ourselves. And yet it, it like, it doesn't work to use the policing system. People don't report for really good reasons. People don't, you know, people who do report, it's like impossible to prove inside that system, like all of those things. So like this, it's a bad match for safety right? It's like the system itself is a murderer, right? Like it's, it's giving medical neglect and nutritional deprivation to all these people inside these cages. It's cops actually murdering people, right? It's taking all the money out of our communities that could be used for housing and say people are living outside, they're going to die younger. So the system is a murderer. The system is a rapist, right? Instead of this fantasy we have about where is a serial killer serial rapist. That's like one way of thinking about that question. I think that's really important. So we might ask ourselves things like, what does make us safe? Like if I'm a person who's vulnerable to sexual assault, let's say I'm like, a young person in high school and there's like a lot of sexual assault happening between people I know in my high school or I'm a person in a difficult marriage or whatever, like what would make me safer? Like, and this is stuff feminists and other people have been working on forever. It's like, oh, having rides makes me safer. Having housing so I can leave something that's not working for me. Having a place to be able to go if my parents abuse me that is like non-punitive and where I don't have to like live essentially in a jail. You know, having, um, you know, access to like, my own money so I can make decisions about myself. Like all, what are the things that make people so vulnerable and get stuck in these really dangerous situations? We actually know the answers. It's the same stuff that we already all are demanding, like housing, childcare, healthcare, income, you know, like basic things, um, transportation, like that stuff actually saves people's lives and not having that stuff, which we don't right now, most people don't have what they need, puts people in these desperate situations where they can't get out of that balance. So the irony of giving money to a violent system that actually makes people more vulnerable to violence like in a million ways, right? So that's a big part of it. And, and the question of like, how do we think about what a, what, what a world without police and prisons looks like? One thing people sometimes say is, oh, we should do this gradually. My first argument would be, if you let everybody out of the, of the prisons and jails and detention centers today, and you took all the resources out of that system and made them available to like municipalities, schools, you know, people in community, like you would overall reduce all the violence, even before we put in cool programs to help each other, like be kinder to each other and deal with, you know, toxic masculinity and racism and all things that do make us like really be horrible to each other all the time. Like even before you did any of that, you would have reduced violence because the violence of keeping people in cages, the violence of picking people off, off the street and, you know, um, sexually assaulting them, all things police do, the violence of the system itself is like often not counted in people's imagination of violence. So that's one. And two, we actually have like a million really cool ideas that people have been doing forever about how to actually deal with harm because harm does happen between people. And so all the time we are like, you know, like if, I mean, some people talk about how rich white people already live in a police free world. Like if a, if, a, if a rich white kid like is having dating violence in their family, in their, in their teenage relationship, or they're having a problem with drugs or whatever, they get all kinds of solutions that are not going, getting arrested. There's no cops in their schools. They get therapy. They get, um, you know, trainings. They get emotional support. There's like other stuff we know works for people. And if people have conflict, like everything works better than putting someone in a cage. Like, especially if you're trying to keep these people in your community, it's like, instead of traumatizing, I mean, I think right now about young people and how traumatic it is just to be arrested as a young person, much less everything that happens after that, but just being 
picked up losing your bodily autonomy, being separated from your family. Like that's like so outrageously traumatizing to people. So many kids don't recover from that. Don't do well in school afterwards, have a hard time trusting people. I mean, so many things, right. But like, if we, if we didn't do those responses and instead we did the things that we know work, like I've done everybody I know and me, I've done things I'm not proud of in my life. And what worked? Oh, having my friends talk to me about how it affected them, having someone help me understand like the impact of my actions and if, and help me think through other options, figuring out why I thought I needed to do that. And was there something either a cultural idea in my head or was there like something I needed that I couldn't get? So I did that. Like, it's just like problem solving. People do this with kids sometimes in some situations, people do this between adults. Sometimes we, the policing system is, you know, disproportionately targeted at certain populations. Um, you know, who are often already in crisis, already in poverty, already um, in various kinds of stress. Um, but it's like, when we imagine the world without police and prisons, it's like, we're taking away the violence those things create. We're recovering all the resources they take. And we're just putting in place the stuff we know works better, right? And if we like think too much about the law and order plots, we're really far from like actually the kinds of things that are ending our lives early, which is stuff like, I can't get the medicine I need. I'm living outside and that is gonna, you know, or I'm being shot by a police officer, the things that are actually ending the lives of people in our communities, or, you know, I'm living in a domestic violence situation in a sustained way because I can't find other housing. So I'm stuck with this person. Like we could solve the problems that are actually like causing the most harm in our lives. And we could solve them a lot better if we got rid of the system that like exacerbates them. I mean, everything that you just shared resonates so Old. deeply with me. Um, I, I so appreciate you naming, you know, safety as a more expansive concept than just having police in place to, you know, protect us. You know, I was recently in a convening with other survivors and we were naming the things that would have actually helped us um, to get out of intimate partner violence. And housing was the number one thing that everyone shared, not police, you know, not having the person incarcerated. It was just housing, like being able to physically remove ourselves from those violent situations. So I, I really appreciate that. And, and that's something else that you said around, you know, this this idea that we have to have all of the systems in place in order to decarcerate. I hear that over and over again. And then, you know, I, I, I think about Philadelphia, for example. They decarcerated a jail without anything else in place. Like they did they don't even have a fraction of the systems that we have here in Los Angeles, like the largest jail system on the planet here. Um they don't they don't have they didn't have those systems in place. They hadn't done that justice reinvestment yet, yet they decarcerated and violent acts went down 4% simply by letting folks go home. And you know, I, I really appreciate you just like really targeting that that idea that we can't do this rapidly, that we can't do this now, because it, it's what's stalling our process towards abolition is this this sense of like, oh, we have to be gradual about it. Like we have to have all the plans in place, and we have to have this like, this perfect plan in order to do it. When the reality is like, we could do it now. We're just choosing not to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And I th I, I don't know if you guys are experiencing this, but here in Seattle and King County, our, our fights to defund the police are like this. It's like the city council or, you know, all the different like politicians we're dealing with, they're all like, give us a perfect roadmap of how nothing bad will ever happen again before we'll take this money away from the police. And then we're just like, just I, look at what the Seattle Police Department does on the daily, who they do it to. We have it all. It's all crystal clear. It's been proven again and again. Just stop that. <laughs> like that would be an improvement. <laughs> just close the youth jail that you just opened. Just, you know this is, this would get us there. I, I think there's a, it's like, it's a weak spot for all of us because we do, we live in a really scary um, set of conditions where it makes sense that we're really terrified. Cause like we live in a society in which if you fall to the bottom, everyone just lets you die. Like, you know, scary. We live in a society in which people hurt each other outside and maybe on our block and like no one helps. This, this stuff is real. I mean, it's incentivized through all these things, racism, sexism, um, all kinds of, you know, things but we are scared and we're all also i think on some level people are actually really scared of the police even people who aren't the targets of them because it's a terrifying thing to have like a militarized thing in the streets and so everyone's like just trying to be like i'm the good one i won't i won't get police i just stay away from me there's all this like the soup we're swimming in and it it makes it really hard to like break the spell and be like wait what creates safety housing what creates safety like, if, like, you know, I mean, there's a whole movement, you know, to get rid of the child welfare system, right? The, the, um, 
which it shouldn't be called the child welfare system, right? The family regulation system. Um, mm-hmm. Because that system criminalizes people for being poor and takes their kids away because their kids didn't have things they needed because they're poor. Like that is what it does. And it's like rich people can abuse their kids all day long. And let me tell you, they do. And they don't get their kids taken away from them. And it's like that whole thing where it's like, we're going to have this really expensive, complex system to keep kids safe when we could just literally offer people free childcare. And that would do it. Like that would make so many kids safer, make sure they have housing and food. Like that's what these kids need. That's what their parents need. They'd be under less stress. They, you know, I know how I act when I'm under worse stress, the kinds of conditions people are parenting under. Yes, it's going to mean that you blow up your kids more. All of these pieces we offer people, we could offer people healing support if they experience abuse as a child that they don't want to do on their kids. Like everybody I know could use that. Like instead we spend all this money to do these complicated processes to take people away from their parents. And then people do really poorly who go to foster care and like have really bad educational and healthcare outcomes because the foster system just basically puts kids like in jail. And so it's like, wow. You know what I mean? Like, can we just, but, but then it's like, oh, there's some, you know, some headline, somebody killed their kid. Now we have to have this system. You know, it's this thing. And I think there's a piece in it that's about a fantasy because we live in an authoritarian society. We have a fantasy that somebody outside is going to save people. There's like a mommy, daddy state fantasy or a superhero fantasy. It's like, I want to call somebody else when something happens. And what we actually need is to learn how to be like, you know what, you and I are on the bus, somebody is harassing this woman and we're going to stop him. We're not going to try to call somebody else. We're just gonna be like, how do you stop someone from harassing people? You just, you know, there's more of us than there is of him. Like, how, like we're going to become problem solvers who can take action in the immediate and get rid of this kind of forced passivity that a policing system trains us all in. And that is very big, like mental and emotional step. And some people already have those skills because they already live in communities where you would never think of calling the police. And so those people have tended to be really sources of wisdom in this whole abolitionist movement. The people who have done that stuff in their neighborhoods been like, no, we're definitely not calling the police. How are we going to do paramedic services without the police? How are we going to do gang intervention without the police? You know, people already have to do that. And it turns out it's mostly grandmothers are really good at that. That's like the wisdom. Everybody keeps like, who really knows how to do this? Old women who've done it a lot. <laughs> you know, that's who knows how to make peace. That's who knows how to make people listen up. You know, that's who knows how to make people act right, which is really cool. It's the opposite of who we value in the society for doing that. But I think that that piece around how do I stop wanting the answer to come from someone else in authority and look at the internalized authoritarianism that got me to that fantasy and like all the cultural mythologies that make me think I have no role in transforming everything and keeping each other safe. And instead it's like going to be like the cop or like the mayor or something. Oof, oh, that's yeah. so powerful. I, I, I just really appreciate you, you naming our elders. I, yes. you know, when I lived in Brooklyn, you know, it was, it was the elders on the stoop that made sure that when I was walking home from the subway that I was okay. And as you know, gentrification takes hold and our elders are just put away and they're, you know, extracted from their homes through, you know, the same systems that extract our young people. Um, it makes us less safe. Right. Um, but you know, the takeaway message that I'm hearing from you is, you know, we keep us safe. This, this notion of like collective safety, right. Um, where it's about neighbors relying on neighbors to support and care for each other. Can, can you share more about that? I, I, I really want our listeners to to really grasp this idea. Um, and, you know, uh, also like power, right? Like you as an individual having power to keep yourself and your community safer. I, I just I found that it just resonated with me so much. Uh, and I want to make sure that comes through. Yeah, I just want to say that, that what you just said about that people on the block who kept you safe walking from the subway just like really brought me back to this really intense memory. Um, this time when I was arrested for using a bathroom for being trans, it was like really awful and stressful transphobic arrest. And I ended up in jail for, you know, overnight or whatever. And when I was waiting, I was put in the women's side. And when I was waiting um, in like the final jail, they put me in like behind the courtroom for like my arraignment or whatever. There was this woman in there, a really old woman who had been arrested because she was being evicted and it was in New York city. She's being evicted. And she like, wouldn't, she like wanted to go back up into her apartment and get her things. And she didn't, she, no one was helping her she, in the, you know, the, the marshals came or whatever. And like, looking at her, I'm like, she's probably going to die of this. Like this woman cannot make it to a new, where is she going to live? She's going to become homeless. She's like so old. Her hands didn't work at all from arthritis. Like, just like, how, how is this one? You know, like this housing system is the murderer. Like, 
And then what's that doing to you when you're walking home? And she used to be the one on the stoop, just like, and and the other kids in the building, she used to kind of babysit or whatever else was her like vital unpaid work in her community. You know, it just, anyway, I just really brought that back. But yeah, I mean, I think that that, that's what this is about. It's like, I I think, I just want to say like, there's a lot of people who are like, I don't think this can work. I don't trust other people. I don't trust my neighbors. I've seen people do bad stuff. we're, We're holding a lot of baggage. The thing that's vital, all all that's true. People are horrible to each other sometimes. You know, there's also an enormous amount of well-being people create for each other, or else none of us would be alive today through these brutal, horrible systems. So I, I, it it goes on, it goes unnoticed, right? But the other piece of it is like anything is a better alternative to the thing we have. So if we actually stop pretending the thing we have delivers the goods, then you don't get this thing where it's like, well, Dean, please tell me about a way in which my neighbors are going to be able to solve these 18 problems. Like, how are they going to protect the, you know, coffee shop on the block from robbery? I'm like, I don't know right now, (laughs) you know, like maybe we could work something out. Maybe we could have an alarm system that rings to other coffee shop owners in the neighborhood and everyone agrees to go show up if if any of the alarms ring. Like, what are we going to do besides the police? Like, it's, yeah, we got to figure out each problem, you know? A lot of it is just if you actually had people have what they need, they just wouldn't be trying to get that 50 bucks out of the coffee shop. Why that person robbing a go- coffee shop is probably because they needed money. So. Yes. <laughs> but then, and then, you know, what we're seeing in our in our city council these days, trying to defend the police and the coffee shop owners are all there like, no, you know, like, so I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, you know, it's, it's like, so on the one hand, I want to say abolitionists shouldn't be required to have an answer about how we're going to have peace and nonviolence while living in the most unequal society the earth has ever seen, because it's not going to happen, right? And on the other hand, even, even under these conditions, we would be better off without those armed thugs, you know, protecting capitalism on our blocks all day long, targeting people of color, et cetera. So it's like, it's, it's, it requires some imagination and it also requires not, not imagination, just like, well, what did make me make, feel safe? Well, someone walked home with me or uh, someone gave me a ride because I felt it felt too late for me to ride that bus. It's always empty or like that. Some of it is just that kind of problem solving, you know, stuff we already do. I love the example that Andrea Richie always gives of like, you know, you're at a party, I'm drunk, I'm about to drive home and you all just like take my keys away. You're just like, Dean, just, and then you just, you just grab them out of my hand if you have to and you mm-hmm. give me somewhere to sleep. And I was about to commit like a crime that could have been like manslaughter or whatever. And you all didn't call the cops. You just solved it. You just, you made me stop and you cut it out. And then maybe tomorrow you'll be like, Dean, you're drinking blah, blah, blah. If you're going to drink like that, we're going to do this. We're going to get you these rides. Or could you maybe not drink that? Whatever. That, like that kind of problem solving is within reach for us. And sometimes it's more complex problem solving. Like there's a group here in Seattle um, called uh, uh, Corner Greeters. Like they spend time in their neighborhood, which is a a black neighborhood that's got a lot of poverty and has historically had violence in the neighborhood. They go to the corners where the most violence happens and they hang out and greet people and try to build community. And it really like, that's a very like community wide way to try to change the geography of the community and figure out, are we going to form some relationships, find out what people need, maybe give people another option, figure out if there's something that's causing a lot of this violence. Like are a lot of young people, you know, experiencing this or that, that then leads this to be the best idea for how they get by. Like what, what does it take? Sometimes it takes something like in your intimate friend circle. Sometimes it takes something that requires your block or your neighborhood. Sometimes it takes rethinking something for like the whole city or a whole district in the city, like different ones of us can plug in different parts of that. But it's like, it's just like, yeah, we can just do these really practical things. And we have to first be like, it's not going to be perfect. We are imperfect people doing imperfect work. And it's going to be better than what we have now, which is like police in Seattle who went and trained with the Israeli military so they could be better at like racist surveillance and are killing people of color here. Like that can't be like our method of safety. You know, that is just such a resource drain and so brutally violent. Like it's the opposite of safety. And so I think it's a leap. It's like a leap of letting ourselves think past those spells we've been getting about what is safety. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I don't know about y'all, but my mind has been exploding with so many, uh, so many bits of wisdom and, and just knowledge and the ways that you've been able to frame everything and make it just so incredible and so accessible and, Mm -hmm. and just damn right poetic in my opinion. So we are, 
um, kind of at the end. And so we wanted to just leave space uh, with all of our guests. We always want to make sure folks have space to share um, any resources that you might want folks to be aware of, things to to read, to listen, to watch, to donate to. What are, you know, if folks want to be active, um, this is your call to action moment. So if there's anything you wanted to shout out, which we will link in our show notes on our Patreon page afterwards. So folks, you know, if you're when, when you're listening to this, you don't have to worry about writing things down. Um, but, you know, if, if Dean, you wanted to just let us know, how, how can folks get engaged and, and, and be committed to action around this? Yeah, I mean, I'll share a few things. For, if people want to really, like, get deeper in understanding what's going on with the work to defund the police, I recommend the website of the group Interrupting Criminalization, because I think a lot of us have, like, a surface, like, awareness that we want to, like, um, defund the police. But if you want to find out like, how are people doing this in their counties? Interrupting criminalization is, is following all that work. They're putting out reports about how it's done. They're putting out detailed plans about like, what should we do around calling um, in a mental health emergency instead of the police? Like, all these kind of questions people really have. So I'd recommend, especially if you kind of like to nerd out, that's a really great website. I'd recommend all of Miriam Kaba's work. You know, she has a new book out. She's got, she's on tons of podcasts. Like all of her, she's just like, I, in my mind, I call her the answer key. She just like, um, has a ton of detailed um, examples and proposals. She has a new website she's worked on called Million Experiments that maybe you could put in the show notes. That's like also examples of just like really cool experiments people are doing in their communities to um, to prevent harm or to stop harm. One of them that I thought was so cool is this thing where people are like hanging out in barber shops and talking about um, to, just trying to create more space. For people to talk about for men to talk about their feelings. And, and try to prevent like the kind of mental health stuff that happens when you're isolated. And there's so much isolation among men. And also men are responsible for a lot of violence and that can be connected to not being supported and not having a place to talk about what's happening. I mean, I just love that example, but there's, you know, civilian experiments is a really cool website. Um, I think it's really useful to follow what mutual aid projects are doing closely and see if you get inspired. So I really do recommend um, it's going down as a news outlet that where I, I hear a lot of stories on their podcast or read a lot of things about like exactly how people are doing stuff, which has helped me to like problem solve. Um, I think that like the stuff around sweeps of homeless encampments is huge. And at least where I live in Washington, it's happening in both rural and urban areas and suburban areas, actually. I mean, and there is so little support and we need to move from like right now. A lot of people have not been able to stop those sweeps. They've, we've not, they've not had enough people to like actually block the cops. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I echo echo park and, um, you know, swept in at the end of March in, in LA was a very heartbreaking example of that. That's been true elsewhere. So those people right now who are working on sweeps are doing a lot of like just supporting people being swept to not lose all their stuff and to like do the sport needed. And that's really important. But I think if we got like, a lot more people involved, we could actually make it impossible to sweep. And it's like, I think it's, you know, it's the front lines. It's one of the many front lines right now in our, um, in our cities and counties. So I encourage people to find out that stuff. If you look, if you can use the hashtag stop the sweeps, you might find some things in your area. And um, if you're looking on social media and relatedly, it's like the, the work to support people in prisons and jails is bottomless. There's not enough people doing it. There's just like the vital mutual aid work of like the letter writing projects of which there are zillions or the, you know, but they're all understaffed and the um the work around like manning um hotlines um for people who are inside the work around accompanying people to hearings around supporting family members like all of that work we need so many more people doing we need a giant campaign around every single person who's inside instead Mm -hmm. of just like a few people like every single person who might be deported every single person who's going through a trial every single person who's been locked up for a long time and supposedly has no more legal remedies we need a giant campaign to get every single one of the people out and so there's a lot more that we could all be doing around that stuff. And, and just the way in is just to find groups that are doing any of it where you live and, and join that and then see, you know, okay, can we add another and another, we add more groups like that. And I'll just say like one phrase I really love from this group, mutual aid disaster relief. They have this phrase, no masters, no flakes. And that is like, I've, I mean, I love it so much. It's like, if we can all show up to this work with that attitude, like I'm going to show up and stick around for the rest of my life. I'm sure we all know the rest of our lives are just going to be all the ecological crisis, all these crises we're living in. We're living in like a very, very brutal time in capitalism and in the environment and in the housing market and all of these things and militarism. So we just need to be like, how can I create a life where I can just do deep community work as needed as what's inspiring me for the rest of my life? And so I'm going to show up and maybe the group I'm with falls apart. I keep doing work. I find other groups. I form other groups. I, I show up with a desire to have this be my lifelong engagement instead of hoping to have the perfect experience the first time I show up to something. So how can I show up 
with, with my deep critical thinking, but not to criticize people, but instead to find out what's working and how I can support things to be even more aligned with my values in a loving way. How can I be collaborative and work with people, even if they're different from me, even if I wouldn't be friends with them before, you know, how can I love them even if I don't like them like that stuff, like that's the other thing I would just encourage people as they like, you know, find their way to the work they want to do, which is just please do because we just, we need more, way more people than we have actively engaged right now for the kind of stuff we're living through. And then how can I come to it with a lot of grace? And my belief is that if you, like, if you want to heal yourself, if you want to like feel better and like be happier, working in groups actually is the most healing thing you can do. It's like, it, rub, it rubs you up against all your raw spots. It gives you a chance to like make peace and repair and you don't just have to deal with your blood family, which is like the hardest place you could do it in activist groups. You can like learn how to be kinder, learn how to be more generous, learn how to stand up for yourself, learn how to ask for what you want, learn how to collaborate. Like it is a space of like creativity and joy. And so even if we we lose and we don't save the world, like along the way, we might've like reduced suffering in each other and in people in our communities and, and actually like had a more meaningful life. I think it's actually like, it, it could be, and made deep friendships people you never thought you would have met. Like it's, I think it's, it should be an incentive for us instead of thinking of it as like just hard work. It is hard, but it's like, it's the best, most satisfying thing you can do in this life. Like it's so much more satisfying than like, if you could buy the thing or if you had the perfect body or whatever they're trying to sell you, you know? Um, and I think it's kind of like hidden. It's like, oh, it's just hard work to go like support people in the homeless encampment. It's like, it's like caring about others and being part of things and collaborating is um, it's so much more pleasurable than escapism, which is like the alternative. Yeah. I mean, the community that is built through, through protests, the community that's built through mutual aid, the community that's built through these social justice movements. I mean, I know we're trying to close up here, but I just like think about like when I had top surgery, like the folks that were on my care list were all for, like movement folks. Yvette and I met through through the movement and you know we'll be getting married in six months like it's like movement love like you know you never know but it's like that community and that like sort of like um re like that that imagining and living out you know prefiguring like the world we want to see and it starts out you know in in so many ways in, in this level by engaging in this work and by practicing doing things differently than the the system has set out for us so Thank you so much and helping us to unpack and helping us to imagine and reimagine and helping our audience members think more critically about, uh, you know, these concepts that, you know, if, if we if we only leave it to mainstream news would have us being living our lives in fear and scarcity. And so, you know, if there's anything that we're trying to do with this show, it's it's the opposite of that. We want to remind people that we do have enough, that there is abundance, that there is love and we do have each other at the end of the day. So thanks a lot. Dean. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you all. It's really fun to talk to you and really, I'm really happy that you're doing this podcast. Thanks for listening, y'all. Find links to what we talked about today in the show notes, which can be found at patreon.com slash smallbeans. The show is hosted and produced by me, Dahlia Ferlito. And me, Yvette Ole. Produced by Hannah Jers Allen of White People for Black Lives and produced and edited by Michael Swaim and Abe Epperson of Small Beans Comedy theme song by Rachel Cantu.